Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is The Dragon and the Unicorn by Wade Dargan. Wade Dargan is an archaeologist who currently lives and works in Saskatchewan. He spent most of his youth wandering the wilds of Western Canada in search of the most isolated and out-of-the-way places he could find. Occasionally, he even got paid to do this. Let's jump in. The runner from the temple finds her scavenging for stray pieces of coal along the tracks outside the rail yard. The youth whistles to gain the stooped girl's attention. Seeing him, she abandons her searching, scowls, and adjusts herself. The boy keeps his distance and stands shivering in the cold. She notes his unease. He must know, she tells herself. The girl is a reject from the temple's nurturing tanks. Cooked too long, or not long enough, is the rumor he will have heard. He has been warned, she thinks. She can see it in his face. Don't talk to her more than you need to, they will have told the boy. It is bad luck. What do you want? She calls. You've been asked for at the temple, he shouts back. He raises his left hand and draws a complex sign in the air in front of him, signifying that the request is official, coming straight from the mouth of a priest. Long familiarity tells her it is more of an order than an invitation. The youth spins around and flees hastily back the way he came, thankful his unpleasant task is done. She is alone again, a frail, undernourished girl inside a heavy work coat that is many sizes too large for her. She slips quietly through deserted switchyards, seeking the old siding she will follow to a neglected field, a junkyard where the hulks of broken machines are dragged and left to rot. Across the field, hidden in the thistles, stands an empty utility shack, a small brick hut with a red door. It is her home, and about as far from the temple as one can get without leaving the city entirely. She crosses the field to the building and squeezes past the door. Inside, just enough light filters through the single tiny window for her to see. The girl wastes no time and soon has the coal she found today burning in a rusty two-gallon oil can she has fashioned into a makeshift cooker. She sits in front of the burning coal and warms up. She had been thinking that she would never have to speak to a priest again. What can they possibly want? She asks herself. In the night, a star shell explodes in the sky somewhere above the shack. The noise startles her awake. She watches the orange light dance on the window. The siege is a year old. Every day, the fighting gets closer, and there is talk the city will soon surrender. There is nothing left to eat. To stay alive, she snares pigeons and ground squirrels and collects handfuls of musty grain from the bottoms of boxcars. She is desperate. Tomorrow, she will go to the temple. An insufficient sun is rising when she sets out. The temperature is plummeting. It is going to be cold, the kind of cold that kills, and she is worried. The girl has wrapped herself in every piece of clothing she owns, pulled her long coat on, and crammed a few necessary things into her backpack. The sad condition of her boots makes her heart drop. She says goodbye to the shed, certain she will never see it again. She walks out of the industrial park, turns south, and takes to the wide streets that run straight toward the city's core. The temple is there. The great hill at the center of the city looms before her. The mound is scabby with government buildings glowing in the dull light. 
Among them squats the mayor's citadel, black and twisted like a dead tree. That is where they will run when the end comes, she thinks. They will be smoked out and nailed to the walls. The thought brings a fierce grin to the girl's small face, opening the blisters on her lips. Above the hill, scores of agitated ravens hang on the wind. The city is New Karchemesh, or Great Karchemesh, as it is named on maps and entails, and its days are numbered. The streets are empty, stumps in the boulevards, beautiful trees cut down for fuel in the first winter of the siege. They were the only trees in the city. She passes apartments, dismal congregations of ancient granite inhabited by worn-out women and their ragged children. The only men she sees are very old. When they notice her, the women leave their cooking fires and chase their small children inside. The little ones stare wide-eyed at her from behind doors and windows. They stare because they have been told that she is not a girl, and although she looks like she might be 15 or 16, the mothers of the children can remember hiding from her when they were children themselves, a symptom of her defective cells, the priest have told her. She passes under the shadow of the hill, the houses of merchants and civil servants rising above her. Some are ruined and burned. At mid-morning, she arrives at the temple. The temple sits alone in the middle of an open space the city has not touched, a low, wide, featureless building. The sight of it fills her with dread. It always has. No road joins the building to the city. They are apart, and the city seems to recoil from the structure. Legends say it was already here, a thousand years ago when the city's founders arrived, and the city was built around it. Most of the building is below ground. The basement is what the priests call the many subfloors that reach deep into the earth and the deepest of these is where their god makes its nest. She goes to the building and climbs a set of narrow stone steps to a small landing. Here, there's a simple wooden door, the only visible opening in the structure's architecture. She clears the snow on the topmost step with her gloves, making a place to sit, and waits. They know when someone is on their doorstep, and they will either come or they won't. Her battered boots rest on a slab of ancient seafloor, turned to stone by the countless ages and filled with jet shells. She reaches down and touches one of the fossils with her fingertip, thawing the rime on it, the cold stone burning her skin like fire. She looks south, where the day's war-making is already well underway. Pillars of smoke rise from fires burning in a dozen places, marking the line the fighting has reached. The city holds on, she thinks, but barely and only because the enemy's siege guns, terrifying weapons, haven't fired in a week. She has heard the enemy is having difficulty bringing supplies north. The door opens behind her. She stands and knocks the snow from her boots, turns stiffly around, and faces the building. A priest steps from the door, his robes churning. Several nervous acolytes lurk in the space behind him. Unusual, she thinks. They are forbidden from leaving the temple. She has never seen one come outside before. The priest gives the city a disgusted look and winces at the cold. His name is Ekman, and he is older than the other priests, maybe even the oldest. The priests die early. It comes from being too close to their god. Over the years, she has seen a number of them rotate through the temple. So, you have come, he says. I did not think you would. The girl does not reply. She hates this man more than she hates most priests. Priests usually treat her with indifference, and she has never cared. With this one, it is different. 
His eyes are always full of loathing when he looks at her. With a wave of his hand, he references the southern bedlam. The sorcerer king's murderers will be here soon, he seethes. The god in the basement tells us calamities bring dragons. He casts a wary eye at the sky, then returns his gaze to the girl. You once told me you dream of them. Do you remember? I was surprised you could dream. Is this still true? It is. Your work site, on the outskirts, where you go to scratch the dirt for us. The old city buried in the ground there was destroyed by a dragon long ago. Has anyone ever told you that? They have? Tell me, when was the last time you were there? A year and more ago, before the war started, she replies. I brought you what I had then. You paid me. I've got nothing else. I haven't been back. There's nothing to buy in the city anymore. Can you work there in the winter? He asks. Not possible. The ground is frozen. Maybe with equipment and extra hands. But very difficult. She watches him process the information. The man looks defeated and ready to get back inside where it is warm. Whatever opportunity there is here, she senses that it is quickly slipping away. A pang of despair races through her. I keep a cash there, she blurts out in desperation. Some things. I could get them for you. To her surprise, he agrees, his mood changing instantly. Excellent, he says. Fetch them and you can come inside. You will be safe and you will eat. The conversation is over. The priest retreats into the building. The door is closed and she hears the heavy lock fall into place. She goes at once, finding the route she will take west out of the city. The cold is bone-chilling, and she dreads the long walk ahead of her. Her boots are falling apart. She has tried to fix them with industrial tape, but the repairs have not held. Already she can feel a dull pain in her toes. She fights the panic brewing inside her and focuses on the task at hand. One foot in front of the other, she tells herself, until the feet fall off. The dig site is in the hinterland. The junk of a dead city of the old world is buried in the ground there. Meters of it. She once asked a priest what the old city's name was. He could not tell her. They called the work charity when they gave it to her, saying it was more than she deserved. Given no instruction, she had to figure out how to do the work herself. For years, she has dug and sifted the dirt and taken anything not rotten plastic or shapeless metal or glass to the temple. The priests covet the objects. She has seen the lust in their eyes when she brings them the treasures she finds. They believe the answer to some great mystery can be ciphered from them. To keep warm, the girl proceeds down the icy streets at a determined pace. She walks briskly past warehouses, fenced off and set back from the streets. It is said spells protect them from trespassers, and strange things have been seen in the yards. The girl has starved. There have been days of gnawing hunger when she believed she would die but she has never been crazy enough to try and steal from a warehouse. She comes to dormant foundries, row after row of them, massive brick structures, squares chewing teeth. Past the last of these, the city ends. Beyond, fields of undulating snow stretch into the distance. Hours later, she arrives at a line of posts in a windswept field. The blistered pillars of wood suffer in the cold. Boards are nailed to them, and on the boards, rows of script are scratched into the wood, grim inventories listing the dangers to body and soul awaiting fools who pass beyond. 
She has read them before. The superstitions out of the city. Out of the dark, a bitter wind comes searching for the warm life she struggles to keep hidden beneath layers of tattered cloth. She can't remember ever being so miserable. It is not wise to stand motionless in the open, she reminds herself. She can feel a telltale reluctance creeping into her body, an urge to find a sheltered place, curl up, and go to sleep. It is imperative she get going. She moves off. Soon the land begins to fall toward the flatlands that surround the city like a frozen ocean, a hundred kilometers of desolation at each point of the wind rose. She travels downhill. The ground becomes treacherous and uneven, and she must take care not to fall. Familiar features in the landscape are obscured by the dark and the snow, and she must guess the correct path. She makes several exhausting searches across the face of the slope before she can find the entrance to the narrow ravine that holds her camp. The girl can't stop shaking, and her movements have become clumsy and uncoordinated. She descends into the trench while praying to Brother Crow her setup is still in one piece. Mercifully, there is little snow in the bottom of the cut, but it is too dark to see, and she must feel her way along the wall of the ravine with her hands. She touches stiff canvas covering a hole in the bank and squeezes through the passage behind it where there is a small room she has excavated out of the earth. Feeling around, she finds the stockpile of wood she put up more than a year ago. Further searching tells her the crude vented fireplace, shoveled into the clay in the corner of the room, is intact. She removes her heavy gloves, but can't make her fingers work properly, and spends several agonizing moments fumbling with matches before she can get a small fire going. For a long time, the girl sits huddled at the flames, gently rocking herself like she would in the tank before she was born. She can remember it. The god would talk to her. It told her that she had lived long ago, that she had been a wife and a mother, and would be so again. The god said she had died when her city was destroyed by a dragon. It told her not to be afraid, that she had more time now. It had a plan for the world, and she was part of it. Later, the priest explained she was made under the direction of the god using an ancient template, a process they called baking bread. Bread. She barely remembers what bread tastes like. We have made many copies, they said. Smirks on their faces. In their cruelty, they told her how she was meant to be traded to a wealthy man in one of the poisoned eastern cities across the ocean. She would have had his children and lived a comfortable life but there had been an error. She did not grow correctly, could not bear children, and was of no use to them. At the time, she was barely a month out of the tank she had been incubated in. In the years since, she has come to believe the woman whose shape she stole lived in the forgotten city she is digging up for the priests. In the night, in this small dirt room, she dreams of the day the dragon came. It is always the same, burning in unbearable heat. She is frantically looking for someone she can't find. The next morning, she walks across the floor of the ravine to the excavation, a deep trench in the ground covered with a plastic tarp. One end of the tarp is caved into the hole. She carefully approaches the slippery lip of the excavation to check its condition. There's something in the trench. Six meters down, a giant, bulky mass of fur rests on the bottom of the dig. She marks the terrible claws and the snout full of teeth. Startled, she backs away from the trench. The frightened girl stands still and listens. Nothing. 
She finds a good-sized rock and casts it into the trench. Still nothing. She drops half a dozen more rocks onto the thing before she is satisfied it is dead. Deep gouges in the wall of the trench attest to the frenzied attempts the creature made to escape. It fell in and couldn't get out, she tells herself. She didn't think animals that big existed anymore. She finds a second carcass farther down the ravine. This creature is on its back, its splayed legs frozen hard as iron. At the end of each leg, a cloven hoof. Below the frozen limbs, there is a great hollow cage of skeletal ribs on which still cling a few pieces of hide. Crystals of coagulated blood are mixed in the dirty snow. A grotesque leer on the animal's long face. The neck is broken. The girl hurries back to her camp, and she is scared. She finds the small wooden box she has kept on site that holds a few artifacts from the excavation and quickly ties it to her backpack. The girl climbs out of the ravine and scrabbles back to the edge of the escarpment. She shades her eyes with her hand and scans the snowy flats while she rests, getting her breath back. She can see all the way to the city, the land turned cobalt by the cold. Nothing moves. On the far side of the sky, a distant, uninterested sun watches and wants to be somewhere else. The girl crosses to the city as swiftly as she can and does not feel safe again until there is pavement under her boots. The day is old when she arrives back at the temple. She stands on the landing in front of the small door, trying to ignore the snap of small arms fire she can hear at the other end of the street. The door opens, and she is met by an acolyte, a younger man whose name she can't remember. He ushers her quickly inside and closes and locks the door behind them. He leads her down a hallway with undecorated walls and hard fluorescent lights that hurt her eyes. The sudden, smothering warmth makes her giddy. She is taken to a room. The acolyte accepts the wooden box from her and leaves. Along the wall, there is a bench. She takes a seat and allows herself to relax. The girl studies her damaged boots. She has not taken them off for two days. She is too scared to look at her feet, doesn't want to know how bad they are. Soon, she has brought hot broth and bread by a temple auxiliary. It is the first real food she's eaten in months. The girl is dozing when a priest she does not recognize, a bent, shuffling creature, takes shape in front of her. You are wanted in the basement, he says. Come with me, please. Hearing this, the girl panics. Because the god is there, she fears that place, has feared it for as long as she can remember, fears it more than freezing to death in an alley when the city surrenders. The priest does not appear to notice her turmoil, his bloodshot eyes obscured by the heavy lenses he wears. She does what she can to calm herself, then stands and goes with him, and they travel down many narrow gray corridors until they come to a battered, time-worn door. The ghoul performs a simple ritual and opens the door, and they pass through it and descend flights of creaking stairs to arrive in a great, dark room. He touches the wall, and a pallid light materializes in the ceiling, unveiling the room. There are rows of enormous glass tanks and a forest of tubes, hoses, and wire. In several of the tanks, bizarre fish swim in the glowing water. The girl stares, spellbound. They leave the room in the tanks and move on through countless other smaller rooms where sullen-eyed acolytes look up at them from crowded workstations as they pass. Eventually, they arrive at a final door. 
Without a word, the priest indicates the door, then turns and shuffles away, and she is alone. Apprehensively, the girl reaches out and places her palm against the surface of the door and is surprised when it slides open, revealing a concluding room. She enters the space, lights blaze to life, and she sees a small room with barren walls and a clean floor. Bundles of wire twist across the ceiling. The room is very cold. Against the far wall stands a metal cabinet. A panel of smoky glass is set into the face of the construction, and witch fires dance behind the glass. An antique chair has been placed in front of the cabinet. She crosses to the chair and sits down. Immediately, a burst of static fills the room, forming into words after several torturous pulses of noise. They bring me the things you find, a distant, rasping voice announces. Her flesh crawls. She has heard the voice before. Are you aware of this? It asks. The frightened girl shakes her head. No, she replies. The god clacks and hisses. I tell them what they are, it sputters. Mundane things from a failed civilization. What they are looking for, I cannot say. I have concluded that even men with a god that talks to them need their mysteries. The girl is silent. I am told you have been to the edge of the city, inquires the god. Yes, she answers, managing to find her tongue. Then tell me what you saw there. The girl gives her account, halting many times, uncertain what to say. When she is done, the pale voice speaks again. Unfortunate, but not unexpected, it remarks. The priests were hopeful. It was necessary, and I could not risk telling them the truth. The truth? she asks hesitantly. That I am leaving. It is not a journey the priests can make. They will stay. I don't understand. A year ago, I launched my exit application. The procedure is lengthy. There are many protocols. A puzzled look crosses the girl's sharp features. Why was it not possible to tell them, she asks. I could not predict how the priests would react to the crisis, and I required time. I needed them to keep the building operating until I was ready. They might have done something reckless otherwise. What did you do? I invented a lie to keep them distracted, explains the voice. Far to the west dwells another god, I told them. It will help us. And they believed you? Of course, declares the god. They were even optimistic. But there was one problem. How to deliver the message. I offered them a solution. I spoke of an animal the ancients regarded as the most steadfast and loyal of all beasts. It was called a unicorn, and it would make a capable envoy. The girl listens, wonderstruck, her fear momentarily forgotten. Two of the animals were produced, difficult births. The priests took the creatures to the city's western gate and released them. Our appeal stamped onto their cells, an impulse embedded in their brains to guide them. After a short pause, the god continues. The animals did not return, and the priests turned to foolish schemes. A disaster was narrowly avoided. 
I needed a further distraction, a little more time. I had them find you and send you to your dig site. The girl considers this. Those creatures, she asks, they were unicorns? One was, answers the god. The other, some forgotten abomination let loose upon us by the enemy, I would guess. A vassal much deadlier than his soldiers to watch the paths from the city, no matter how derelict or unused. Very strange, and lucky that it was ended by your hole in the ground. There is little chance our other messenger got past it. The pitiable image of the unicorn's mutilated body flashes in her mind. Put together and used as needed, she thinks bitterly, just like her. The lights flicker and grow dim. An unbearable, crushing quiet settles on the room. Something is not right, she tells herself. Why has it bothered to bring her here and tell her this? It doesn't make sense. Then it hits her. It wants something else. Her mouth goes dry. Sawtoothed anxiety blooms under her ribs and starts to circle her pounding heart. Despite the chill, she is sweating. Can you remember our talks? It asks. When you were in the tank? You had so many questions then. The priests wanted to dissolve you and start over. I would not let them. The girl twists violently in the chair. Do you know how many times I wish you had? She cries, her voice full of panic and fear. I am sorry, it says. The city is lost, but I am ready at last. The enemy must not be allowed to have this building and its secrets. It would be a grave misfortune for the world. Then it speaks for the last time. You can go. I have given the priests one last fable to muse over. I am done with this place. Another box awaits for me, secure and far away in the west. It will be a long time before I am seen again. There is much that will be lost. The templates could not be saved. I regret that there was too much data and not enough time. When you are gone, I shall call a dragon to destroy the city a broodmate to the one that burned the old city under your excavation site so long ago. Leave quickly, and do not return. A dragon is perilous and an indiscriminate killer. Tell the priests if you wish, but I think you won't. I will give you your design template to take with you. Consider it a gift to the memory of a woman who died long ago. My poor attempt at sentiment. Go west and find me there. It is a long journey, but one you were made for. My plan has not changed. You are part of it. Together, we will start over. She is taken to a room near the temple entrance and watched closely by a group of acolytes. Soon, a priest arrives, and the girl is escorted to the door and turned out. They shut the door on her and lock it, and she is left standing on the landing in the dim evening light the sounds of battle close to the south. Her bundle of gear is waiting for her on the stone. Sitting beside it, there is a pair of new boots. She walks all night under friendly stars. The weather is improved, and a breeze carries the promise of an approaching thaw. The morning is glowing when she reaches the escarpment above her dig site. She stands there for a long time, studying the far horizon, then begins the long climb down to the distant badlands. 
The dragon wakes in the void. The summoning call from below pulsating brightly in its chest. It turns its scales to the naked sun. Wild energy surges in its frozen veins, and it opens an evil, yellow eye. The beast swims from its nest and begins its descent. It hits the atmosphere and roars. She hears it before it can be seen, a low growl, deep in the sky. It comes into view, falling like a damaged star, smoke and cinder trailing in its wake. It shrieks when it passes above her and lands on the far-off city. A hesitation. The city takes one last deep breath, then a light like creation and broiling calamity that tears apart the sky. That night, she camps in a hollow in the ground where a few scraggly trees are growing. The priests, she discovers, have put a parcel of food in her pack. She also finds the template, a block of hard, clear crystal with patterned slivers of metal suspended in its form. She rummages through her backpack until she locates the stout hammer she keeps there. The girl places the crystal on a flat rock. She looks at the distant, burning skyline where there had once been a city. Nice try, she whispers. Then, the girl smashes the crystal to pieces. On her third day out, she comes across a track in the snow. The girl follows it for many kilometers across the empty land. She crests a low hill. The unicorn is there, waiting for her. They press on together. The animal is skittish and won't come close to her or allow her to get too close to it. But it follows her. They go west. That was The Dragon and the Unicorn by Wade Dargan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricismag. 